Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The Supreme Court hears the biggest First Amendment case in a generation. What is the speech that is required of your client that would violate the First Amendment? She believes that same-sex weddings contradict Scripture. We'll get analysis on the case, 303 Creative versus Elenus. Everyone should be able to speak freely, that no one should ever be punished or coerced by the government to say something that they don't believe is true. We'll also talk about the broad struggle of what's happening in our nation with Pastor Alan Jackson. We took God off the throne, and in too many cases, I think we put the government on the throne. Hmm. And so we're watching our nation plunge into paganism. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the Supreme Court. Many of you will remember the Supreme Court case of 2018, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. That was the Jack Phillips case, where Jack ultimately won 7-2 before the nation's highest court. It was a big win, but the court tailored its decision narrowly and did not address directly the broader First Amendment issues. But they did this week. The case, 303 Creative versus Elenus. Lori Smith is a website designer and a Christian. Simply put, She would like to create websites with messages compatible with her broader Christian worldview. Representing her was Alliance Defending Freedom and their CEO, Kristen Wagoner. Here's a bit of the argument before the court, with Justice Kagan pressing Kristen. So, Mike and Mary, go into your client. We love your graphics. We saw them someplace else. We love how this looks. Um, Here's what we want. We want a standard site, our names, our, the picture, the hotels, the registry, you know, just, just that. And uh, you say, okay, don't you? As, yes, assuming all the details line up with the message that she's willing to create. Yeah, I mean, then they say, we don't want your scripture. But they, that's all right with you. They don't have to have scripture. No, they don't. Yeah, have to. they can just have a standard site, right? Okay. So now it's not Mike and Mary. Now it's Mike and Mark, and they want the identical site. We saw Mike and Mary's site. We loved it. We're getting married, you know. You know, all they want to change is the date, maybe, or you know, their names, whatever. We loved it, and and they don't get it. And the question, and and you say no, right? You 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 wouldn't be up there if you weren't going to say no, right? They can't get that site. Yes, because the same words can even convey different meanings. Yeah. So then, I mean, the difference is one couple is opposite sex, one couple is same sex. How is this, you know, what what are the different meanings? What is the speech that your client is expected, is is required to provide in uh, the way I expressed it to you? The purpose of the websites is to celebrate an upcoming wedding. It's to announce a wedding. And it to, is to and announce to, a wedding. I mean, let's, this is a standard site. You know, there's not a whole lot of, gosh, isn't this great? It's just like, here's the registry, you know? It's announcing the wedding. It's announcing where to get 
the hotel reservations and so forth, right? So what speech is being I mean that's that's what that's what websites do, just like it's what invitations do, right? So you know, next we'll have the stationer up there saying, you know, we print the stage the, the stationery, right? I mean that would be the same. It is announcing the wedding. What's the speech that's been required of your client that we I mean I'm gonna have lots of questions for these guys too. But in, in that context, what is the speech? that is required of your client that would violate the First Amendment? She believes that same-sex weddings contradict Scripture, and she's announcing a concept of marriage that she believes to be false. And in addition to that— I mean, but that just sounds to me like I would be participating in a wedding, I would be, you know, lending my services to a wedding. You know, as Justice Sotomayor suggested— the florist, the baker, and the guy who provides the chairs are also providing the services in a wedding that they don't like. Um, uh, so why are they any different? The person providing the chairs isn't providing speech. But when you are engaging in symbolic speech, whether that be through the creation of a custom wedding cake or a custom wedding website, you are creating speech. Even I though the site doesn't say anything about that, it doesn't say wow, gay marriage is a wonderful thing. It doesn't say, it doesn't even say, you know, we're here to celebrate this wonderful marriage in my hypothetical. It doesn't even say that. Again, the announcement of the wedding itself is a concept that she believes to be false, and the entire purpose behind the compelled speech doctrine is to avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. It's to ensure that individuals don't speak messages that betray their conscience, and that applies just as much to the Democrat as to the LGBT or the black cross sculptor. Thank you. It's pretty difficult to overstate how important this case is. At its most basic level, the question is, can the government tell me in my private enterprise, what I must say. I'll let Matt Sharp, also with ADF, explain. He was a guest of Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk in Tampa. This was a case, basically, in, in a broad sense, it's about free speech, even though we would look at it also as First Amendment, religious liberty, religious freedom. And the idea here is got to draw the line somewhere, and it, it's getting more and more complicated. Would you agree that why this uh, went on for two and a half hours and not 70 minutes is uh, there's a lot of implications and a lot of other situations depending on how the Supreme Court rules on this case. Talk about it because for me that's not a lawyer, man, it was hard to, to, to just kind of follow this at a couple points because uh, this is like walking a tightrope. Yeah, well, I think what the, the case really boils down to is Lori Smith serves everyone, regardless of their orientation, their identity, anything. It's just the, the messages that she's asked to create that she's not able to do. And so a lot of the court's questions were trying to parse that out. Is What's the difference between saying, I won't do a uh, wedding website, a custom wedding website for a same-sex couple versus turning away the couple? And this is what Kristen did an excellent job of focusing, that Lori would never turn away someone because of who they are, whether it's because they're a same-sex couple or uh, their race, a disability status, anything. Lori never looks at those things. Rather, as an artist, she always asks, what are you asking me to speak? What are you asking me to create? What 
are you asking me to to help you tell the story of on this website? And that's what determines for Lori whether she can do that specific project. And so that goes back to it's never about who's asking Lori to take on a new project, whether it's what they are asking Lori as an artist to speak and create through the website. As I looked at that, and again, it goes back to the main case that the the argument was made that, look, uh, 303 Creative, they will do projects for everyone. It could be a straight person, could be a homosexual person, whatever. But when it comes to the ceremony or being part of this ceremony, uh, that is the, the violation of the owner's closely held religious convictions to Christian doctrine. But I think it, it was clear that the justices picked, at least the conservative justices, picked up on that pretty early with this, uh, you know, the who and the what. Because the idea is for them to try and say just because uh, two lesbian women or two gay men approached her to do some work, and she wouldn't do that. No, that wasn't the case. It was just for ceremonies. But it seems like they had to keep driving that home over and over because uh, the the ones that would like to see Colorado upheld, they wanted to try and, to keep hammering away on that. That's right. And I thought one there was a, a great hypothetical that uh, Justice Barrett asked that I think highlighted that for Lori, for example, if two people came to her and said, hey, we're, we're married, but we don't like our spouses. We're going to get divorces and, and uh, marry together. Would Lori do that? And Kristen said no, because that would also violate Lori's belief that marriage is a sacred lifelong union um, and that divorce is something that Christians shouldn't be doing. And it emphasized that for Lori, it is all about that biblical view of marriage. Does the wedding website that she custom creates for each couple to reach out to her, do they reflect that biblical understanding of marriage? And if they don't, regardless of whether it's a two people seeking a divorce or um, a same-sex marriage or anything else that doesn't align with a biblical understanding of marriage, Lori can't create that specific website. But anything else, if, if that same-sex couple came to her and said, hey, would you do a website for our small business? Lori would gladly do it because it's not about the person. It's about the, the thing that she's being asked to express, to promote, and to celebrate. I got to tell you, I uh, you could tell the amount of time the justices had uh, put into preparing for this because as they were reeling off these hypotheticals, uh, it was hard for me to keep up, much less I thought about myself, Matt. If I was standing there and I got that boom right now, and you know you're expected to boom, you know, respond right away, that's where I want to bring back in Ms. Wagner because it was phenomenal how she was able to process something to even in many cases, I thought, I think rightly so unrelated, but boy, she was spot on with immediately coming back with a, with with a firm legal defense on why that particular hypothetical may, may not apply. Talk about that because she just, again, I get back to the fact that that she just did a, a brilliant job and folks, if you don't know how it works, you go before the Supreme court and you've got what you want to present. Now, the justices can interrupt you day in and day out. You can say, but, and doom, you got a question. Now, you can't do that, so it's not a fair matchup. Talk about that, Matt, because it is it is an interesting arena, isn't it? It, it very much is. Look, we, we've got nine justices that all of them are obviously incredibly brilliant and, and have really sincere questions that they're trying to understand these cases. And so uh, Kristen Wagner was up there for, I believe, over an hour, um, just one question after the other, asking these hypotheticals. But I think the two things that have really prepared Kristen for this, 
Number one, she represented Jack Phillips five years ago to the day where his case was argued at the Supreme Court. And a lot of the same questions and a lot of the same arguments were made by the state of Colorado and Jack's case that are being made today. And so that work that Kristen put in representing Jack so many years ago, I think has really come to fruition in, in being able to demonstrate to the court today why Lori's speech is entitled to First Amendment protection. But the second thing is our position is focused on a very important principle, that principle that it is the message that matters in all of this and that no government should have the authority to force any American to speak or believe a message that violates their beliefs. And when you start from that principle, that core idea that beyond the government's authority is the idea to tell us what we must say, what we must believe, what we can and cannot think or say when we go into business, it really makes it easy to answer a lot of these hypotheticals. Because at the end of the day, we return to that principle that everyone should be able to speak freely, that no one should ever be punished or coerced by the government to say something that they don't believe is true. Coming up... We took God off the throne, and in too many cases, I think we put the government on the throne. Pastor Alan Jackson, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. Our nation is changing quickly before our eyes. That may be stating it too simply or too gently, but I think most of you see it and sense it. We see it in our entertainment culture. We see it in our politics. We see it even this week in the case we've been talking about before the Supreme Court. Pastor Alan Jackson of Alan Jackson Ministries joined Scott Furrow, my colleague in Los Angeles on KKLA. As you follow this case and this kind of thing, what kinds of things come to mind as you think about it pastorally for the church? Well, I think there's a, several issues that are involved in it. I think fundamentally at the heart of it, there's a free speech issue. Yeah. Whether or not we're going to have the imagination that the government can dictate what we say or create or how we do that. You know, most of my adult life has been shaped by this notion of the ACLU defending the right to freedom of speech, that no matter how heinous the thing is you want to say or how offensive it may be to someone else, that you've had the right to say it. Yeah. But in the last, you know, just recent season, we've pivoted on that, and we've come up with these new categories of misinformation and disinformation. We used to use those in the intelligence community, but we didn't use them in the public square. I think the categories is the interesting thing because we changed what a married couple is. We changed the definition culturally, what that word is, uh, and, and it has practical effects. I think that the you know the idea is, well, love is love. People should be able to do what they want, but it doesn't end there. It has actual practical effects, doesn't it? They do. Words have meanings, and definitions have implications. You know, in society for thousands of years, actually, marriage has been understood overwhelmingly to be between a man and a woman. And it's become fashionable to, to redefine that. Well, if you change the definition and you open the term, then we have to have another definition. Mm. And I think we have stumbled on that point, because if marriage isn't between a man and a woman, you can marry a bicycle. Right. Or you could marry a graph or 
I mean, if you truly have pried open that definition, then you have to provide the context in which it can be understood. For the Christian, this isn't particularly complicated. Our definition of marriage is not something we derived. It was given to us by God. It starts in the second chapter of Genesis, and then Jesus picked it up in his own ministry. So for the Christ followers, this one's not complicated. There's a biblically informed view of marriage. So if you're going to be Christian and talk about Christian marriage, there's a context for that. Yeah. So how do we live in a world where the secular culture is changing that, and we live in a society that is uh, meant to be pluralistic? And so where does the Christian fit into this? I think we're going to have more and more challenges because of the change of that word, right? What do you think the Christian should do? Well, I think, first of all, we have to wake up because we're salt and light, Mm. and we we have lived for many, many decades in a culture where that Christian worldview was the primary influence, and the definition of marriage was not in play. And because of our lack of faithfulness and our lack of adherence, we have allowed something to happen on our watch so that now we find ourselves where that Christian worldview is under assault. And I don't believe the intent is simply to expand the opportunity, because the truth was you could have lived about any way you wanted to. Right. But it's the discussion started out as we want equal treatment under the law. The first I remember was we simply want the same rights, the same insurance rights or legal rights for a same-sex couple as you have for a heterosexual couple. But it very quickly morphed into trans issues and the trans issues for our minor children. Christians have to understand, I believe, that it was our lack of effectiveness, effectiveness as being late in the darkness that got us to this place. So we don't want to necessarily rage against the darkness. We want to go turn up the light. Let's come back and talk about the values of a marriage between a man and a woman and the benefits to their biological children, the strength of that nuclear family, what it's brought to our nation, what it's brought to the world, why that's important, and repent of our willingness to have lived in such an immoral way that we lost our influence in the culture. Would you say that that is really, and I'm agreeing with you here, that this is something that the church, we can't just speak to the darkness, especially if we're living in it or not showing the light on it. When did the the church begin to themselves not live according to uh, what the Bible has to say about marriage or bringing up families and things like that? Well, I think we have to take a step back and look at the larger story. You know, Christianity as it emerged was a different way for human beings to respond to one another with respect and dignity. It brought a dignity to women that often had not existed. And we sent the Christian message into the pagan world. And we watched it reform culture after culture after culture and bring a higher standard of treatment and behavior for people in general. And somehow the church lost sight of that. And we imagine that our freedoms and liberties come from governments or from politicians or from political parties. And we took God off the throne. And in too many cases, I think we put the government on the throne. Mm. And so we're watching our nation plunge into paganism. And the Christians seem completely addled by this. We're negotiating. Well, you know, how many definitions of marriage can we include? Well, for the Christian, we don't really have that menu to choose from. We don't have a menu to choose from on where human sexuality is appropriate. God told us that the marriage bed is pure and undefiled, but before marriage it's not good, and beyond marriage it's not good. It doesn't matter about our opinion. The designer gave us the guidelines. And if if the Christians don't have the courage to come back and humble ourselves and repent and acknowledge our waywardness, I believe we can see God restore us. It's the best thing for our children, for Mm. the children amongst us. They're not safer. 
We don't feel like our families are more secure and our children are safer as we've plunged further and further into paganism and away from a godly worldview. But it's going to take some real courage now to walk that back because we will lose friends and lose opportunities and we'll be excluded. You're going to get labeled. Some will try to cancel you. And we understand that. So we keep capitulating. Yeah. You know, if being more tolerant would make this a safer place, we would be safer by far than we've ever been before. Right. But has not brought security. It's brought more vulnerability. You said that uh, we're, we are moving back towards paganism. That When you take a look at this through history, I know you're a history guy. One of the great things that the, the church did was it moved the world out of uh, sort of pagan barbarianism into civilized culture, a culture that worked. And part of that was marriage and family. That was a big piece of why particularly Western culture and then other cultures to follow we're able to get out of poverty. We're able to grow, to deal with science and cure disease and all kinds of things. But we're moving back towards that barbarian society, aren't we? Well, we're certainly, you know, paganism is savage. You know, in the pagan cultures, they would offer their children as sacrifices to appease demonic gods. Not a new thing and across many cultures. Yes. Look at that and we think, well, how barbaric. But then we've sacrificed 60 million children to convenience and comfort mm-hmm. and economics. Or now, you know, we've progressed to where we're mutilating our pre-adolescent children. And there's really not too many voices speaking up on behalf of that. The church certainly seems to be strangely silent. And, I mean, just about any place you look, we see the explosion of violence and anger. Does speaking to you as a pastor and just kind of what you, you think about, is part of that restoration that Christians need to start believing Jesus, not just believing in Jesus, but believing what he said. Is this a is this a problem that we don't really believe what the Bible says is true, even though we say we do? I, I think we have been led into a place to imagine a transactional faith mm. that I'll recite a prayer and get dipped in a pool. I've checked the appropriate boxes and now I can live my life pretty much on my terms. Yeah, I think a more accurate read of the Gospels is a transformational faith where we're transformed from the inside out. I believe in the new birth or conversion or salvation, and I'm an advocate for baptism, but the objective of our faith is to be transformed into the image of Jesus, Yes, which means he establishes the priorities for my life. And what I feel and what I think and what I want has to be subjected to the lordship of Jesus. So if I want something or I feel something that is against his counsel, I have to have the courage to wrestle with that and change. And that message is not popular in Christendom today. Coming up, we'll look at the state of the church in the UK. Christianity has a habit of coming back from the dead. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. So much of what we've talked about thus far in the program is sobering and a wake-up call to all of us who are Christians. But the challenges for the church are by no means limited to us here in the U.S. Europe, and indeed the greater part of the English-speaking world, have a similar set of challenges. 
I turned to Justin Brierley of Premier Christian Radio in the UK for a discussion about the state of the church in his home nation. You say there is a, certainly a change, but it's not uh, quite what's being described, a totally pagan culture, or what's happening in that regard? <laughs> well, in a way, the results of this latest census are not unexpected. There's been a constant fall in church going and in people describing themselves as Christian, really, for the last half a, half a decade, um, well, half a century um, or more. And and to that extent, you know, I, I don't think anyone was particularly surprised that less than half of people in this latest census describe themselves as Christian. The fact is, you know, the fact whether you call yourself a Christian or not doesn't necessarily mean an awful lot. Um, I think what's perhaps more indicative of real Christian commitment is church-going statistics, and, and, and those are far lower, obviously, than just a half of people. So I think, I think at one level, you know, yes, we can, we can sort of say, oh dear, what a shame, less people calling themselves Christian. I'm not so worried about that. I'm, I'm actually more concerned about what is happening among Christians and in the church in the UK, because I think there are actually some very positive signs in the last few years that actually there are some good things happening in the church. We're seeing the green shoots, shoots of revival in some parts of the church in the UK. And even if, if you like, a more cultural form, a nominal form of Christianity has to wither and die, that may not be a bad thing. Sometimes things do have to die off before new things can grow up in their place. So I'm not as worried or, or concerned as some people are about it. Well, the headline is Christians become minority in UK calls to grow, calls grow to cancel Church of England. Uh, now, that's more than a tongue-in-cheek uh, observation, although I don't imagine it's going to happen. But is there that sort of response on the part of some of the uh, humanists and others in your country that uh, you've lived past the time when uh, uh, the uh, Church of England is uh, such a force and even tied directly into the government as it has been? <laughs> well, certainly that's been the message of people like the British Humanists and Secular Society for some time, yeah. even before these latest numbers came out. And, and to be honest, you know, the, the status of the Church of England as a national body is an open question. There's Christians I know who would say, actually, there shouldn't be this conjunction between church and state that has historically existed between the Church of England and the state. Uh, so, so in a way, that's a slightly separate question. I mean, as to the Church of England itself, I mean, that's not going anywhere soon. And, and like any institution, it has its problems. Um, it has its, uh, its churches that are struggling, but it also has large church networks that are, are flourishing, actually, in the UK. So, um, again, the story is far from over for the Church of England. And, and ultimately, you know, when the humanists, you know, and I've been seeing the emails come through, we are no longer a Christian country uh, and so on. Well, we're not exactly an atheist country either. The fact is, when people put no religion on the census ballot, they're not saying they're atheists. Very often, they're people who simply have a kind of vague spirituality. They're agnostic. Um, they maybe do turn up at church once in a while, Christmas and Easter, but they don't call themselves Christian. So there's all kinds of different ways in which mm. people think of themselves, and, but they're hardly becoming hardline materialist atheists in the process. In fact, you know, when you actually look at the statistics that ask people very specific questions about do you believe there's a purpose you know, in life and those sorts of things, people tend to still give quite religious-sounding answers. And in fact, even though the polls say we're less religious than we used to be, I, I think we're not actually any less religious than we used to be. We're simply religious about different things. When I look around me at the culture we live in, I see people getting very passionate 
about things you can't necessarily see, touch or smell. You know, they're, they're passionate about issues around justice. They're, they're passionate, passionate about particular ideologies, whether they be political or cultural or social or sexual or gender ideologies. You know, there's all kinds of things that people rally to and treat in a quasi-religious way, in fact. So the religious instinct hasn't gone away. It's just been, I think, subverted into other stories where the Christian story used to give us our binding narrative and sense of who we are. Now it's a bit of a free-for-all. You know, there's lots of competing stories in our culture. There have always been uh, dips and troughs in the, the church going and the Christianity of the West, and we're in one of those. But Christianity has a habit of coming back from the dead. Um, you know, that, that was really much, pretty much founded on that in the first place. Amen. And to that extent, I, I do believe, actually, that God is not finished with England, with the UK, with the West. And that however bad it seems to get, actually, sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. But, that, but where we really believe we've been given a mission to make a difference in Christ's name. And, and, and that's what we're here to do now. Coming up. Advent. The word just means coming. It's from the Latin word for coming. And so it's a time in which we look forward to the coming of Jesus. We learn to wait and to wait patiently for the coming of Jesus. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Mary, did you know that your baby Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. In the first chapter of Luke, we have these beautiful words from Mary, uttered in praise after she realized that she would be the mother of Jesus, the long-anticipated Messiah. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And she continues, but she had to wait. And each Christmas season, you and I have an opportunity to wait as well. So take time to appreciate the wonder of the incarnation, the glory of God's unfolding plan of redemption, and the sacrifice he would pay to reconcile man to God. I think you'll enjoy this conversation on Advent. Timothy Paul Jones of Southern Seminary joined John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 105.1 FM in Pittsburgh. We have sort of been remiss in our recognition and our following through theologically with the Advent season, don't you think? I think so. And I think a lot of that's just because uh, sometimes more than we even know, our rhythms of life are determined by the culture around us rather than by the Christian tradition or the Christian calendar. But I think that's true, that we've been sort of remiss in in celebrating or even in understanding really what's going on in Advent. Yeah. Okay. So can you talk to us about your perspective of what really is going on in Advent, what we're about to enter into? 
Well, Advent, we need to first think about just even what the word itself means. The word just means coming. It's from the Latin word for coming. And so it's a time in which we look forward to the coming of Jesus. We learn to wait and to wait patiently for the coming of Jesus. And so that's one of those things. It's hard to market waiting. And so it's hard for us to kind of get that sometimes. Waiting is not very marketable. And yet what's going on in this is that we are celebrating waiting. We are celebrating patience. And to me, it is in some ways the most countercultural of all the elements of the church year, because if there's anything our culture tells us you don't have to do, it's wait. And yet this says it is not merely that we're waiting for Christ to come, but that our waiting is good and our waiting is meaningful. That's what Advent is supposed to help us do and to think about. So we are waiting for the arrival of the child Jesus to come into this world. But why is it, do you think, that we have somehow sort of gleaned over this Advent season? We sort of jump into the Christmas season. Has commercialism taken over and we as believers have just sort of jumped along with that? Well, I also think it's partly that, but I think it's because in our fallen human nature, the fact is that we don't want to wait. We just don't want to in this. And, uh, and, and so we leap forward to simply celebrating Christmas, which, of course, is its own beautiful and wonderful thing. It's not to downplay that at all. And we just bypass it. We, and, and so because of that, we forget, we jump around it. And, and that time of what I think Advent could be for us today in our culture, who we have everything so instantly, could it be a time for us, if we were to truly celebrate it, of in different times of our day, in different times of our life, say there's something I'm going to do that I'm just going to breathe and slow down and be patient and be intentionally patient. That may be something as as simple as taking a walk with your child and not trying to rush things along. It may be something as simple as, as choosing to, to do something in a way that takes longer and just to slow down and calm down in that time. And in that time, remember and think about what it is to wait for Jesus to come and to yearn for Jesus to come. I think that yearning for Jesus to come, um, I think, is really important for us to recognize that we've gotten so comfortable in so many ways. And I think that's the other reason we leap over this is we can get so comfortable and forget to yearn for Jesus to come. And I I hope that if there's one thing we've been reminded of, it's that we do long for, we do want in our souls a world where all things are made right and new and there are no more sickness and death. Those are things we ought to long for, but it's easy to leap forward to to the celebration and to forget to yearn for Jesus to return. Throughout the Advent season, Timothy, are you doing something differently? Are you praying differently? Are you worshiping differently? thinking differently than you would, you know, during the regular season of the year. I think one of the things our family does is we try to just kind of slow down, calm down in the evenings a little bit more during this time and and use that time. We do something called the Jesse tree. You can look that up online. It's a good way for your family to celebrate this. And we we sit down and just color these decorations that you can get that are these Jesse tree decorations with colored pencils. Just even that is this slowing down in the evening and saying we're not going to rush. We're going to take some time to be together, to just be present and to do something silly, color this each night together. Um, th- that's something you can do in that something in which you are slowing down, 
calming down and waiting and to look for those spaces in your life when you do have to wait and think, what can I do, maybe not just in Advent, but in any time, to actually deploy those in a meaningful way, not by having to be productive, but by rather calming down in the presence of God and rejoicing in that and let that awaken a yearning. But there will come a day when Jesus is coming, and I am most of all waiting for that. Uh, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Catholics, you know, um, they, they sort of like, you know, had a better understanding or at least, at least a more theologically robust celebration of the Advent season. Um, can you talk about that? You know, why maybe Presbyterians or Baptists are a little slow to respond to a traditional viewpoint of Advent and how we can get better at focusing on that? Well, I think those of us in the Reformed and free church traditions, we're a little suspicious of certain things because of the ways, in certain ways, that they were misused um, up into the Reformation and things like that. So we're just suspicious. There's a suspicion there. That suspicion isn't necessarily bad, but we also, it doesn't mean that we need to reject everything that may come from these particular seasons. Uh, One of the things I do tell people is the actual contemporary uh, way that we celebrate Advent with the four candles and everything like that. That's actually a Lutheran thing from the early 19th century. It comes from more from that tradition than anything else. There was a, a guy, and his name was uh, Johann Wichern, and he ran this orphanage, and he was trying to find a way for his the children in the orphanage to count down to Christmas, and he set up 24 candles. Um, it's what he did, but the big candles were the Sundays. And, uh, and so he actually would do that, and that's where our contemporary version of this comes from. And so if people are maybe concerned about something from Catholicism, or something like that, don't be, because this is actually more of a Lutheran thing than anything else. But the fact is, all of us, no matter what religious tradition we come from, all of us can stand to learn to wait and to yearn for the return of Jesus. And ultimately, it's not about the candles. It's not about Advent. It's about disciplining our souls to long for Jesus and be able to be patient and to wait well. That's what it's ultimately about. Figure out ways that you can celebrate and learn to wait well in Christ and trust in Him. Coming up, it's simply being deliberate about something very simple in what you're doing. More on Advent with Timothy Paul Jones when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. I know there are many, perhaps many of you who hear this, who want to recognize Advent, who want to avoid the freneticism and commercialism of the season and focus on Christ. But sometimes it's easier said than done. Let's pick up on the conversation of Timothy Paul Jones with John and Kathy. So as a pastor, someone who who writes uh, well and deeply, what are you thinking about? What are you reading differently during the Advent season? Do you look at Scripture passages a different way? Do you delve into something deeper? Is it a daily reader? Is it a daily devotional? What's that look like for your Advent tools? You know, one of the things for me is I try to find something that I'm going to read slowly and deliberately. That's one of the things I do is just try to find something that I will read slowly and deliberately. And, uh, for example, for me, uh, right now, the, the one thing that I'm, I'm reading um, right now is a book by Hannah Anderson called Turning of Days. Oh. Um, it goes through the year, through the seasons of the year, and it's much more contemplative, and it's a slow read and a meditative read. So I'll try to do something 
something like that, as well as with my family, as I mentioned earlier, to try to do something where together we are doing something just each night to slow down for a little bit and not to have to feel like we have to be entertained, but to slow down together as a family and do so in a way that is worshipful and prayerful in what we're doing. And so that's the thing. It's not something huge, something where you need to go out and buy some massive uh, thing or something like that or one yeah. certain magical object. It's simply being deliberate about something very simple right. in what you're doing. I mean, I like about this. What I like is, you know, I was in uh, the grocery store the other day, and I saw that they were selling the um, Advent calendars, which, you know, people of no faith at all would buy an Advent calendar because it's sort of a countdown to Christmas Day. And inside a lot of Advent calendars, especially for little kids, are pieces of chocolate. So, you know, you can see the secularization of whatever, you know, the Christian faith is. And, of course, we'll sell that anyway. You can get it bundled up. So I, I do appreciate that you don't have to go out and buy something for the sake of buying something to enter into this holy season. And one of the things to do as well, this is what I do with actually with our kids. We have a calendar of that sort, but we put a twist on it for our kids. And that is each child, we rotate, we got four children, we rotate through them where they, where they get something, but they don't get to keep whatever they get out of it. They have to gift it to one of their sisters, uh, one of their other sisters. So it's something where you get something, but then you give it away immediately. And that we did to discipline ourselves and them. So this year it's a Lego set, uh, but what they'll do is they go through that and then they'll give it to one of their one of their siblings, hey. and that way we're doing it in a way of giving rather than getting, rather than immediate gratification, rather it's delayed gratification of saying I'm going to give it this, way, knowing that at some point I'm going to get something later, but it'll be in somebody else's time and somebody else's way. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed our program. If you did, go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Google Play. And never miss these and other great conversations. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pujan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.